First Chronicles chapter 25 this evening as we continue and sort of wrap up our study through the book of Chronicles here, probably in the next study or two. We're kind of in a spot here where David is organizing the kingdom at this time prior to his death, kind of like that statement of you know getting your house in order if you recognize the end is somewhat near in your life. That's kind of a typical thing that happens, and David senses his time is short here on the earth as the king of Israel, and so he's kind of bringing some things together. His son Solomon at this time is sort of co-reigning with him, almost like a co-regent. David knows that he'll be the next successor over the kingdom of Israel. And so David at this time is kind of putting in order some things. He's been organizing uh, things relating to the temple, organizing the Levites and the divisions of the priests. And now as we come to chapters 25, 26, and 27, we have a little bit more of, again, kind of these lists and organizational type things, kind of some tedious things to work through. But yet there are some, I think, valuable things in the midst of some of these lists and genealogies that we have written here as well. Chapter 25 particularly gives to us uh, King David's organizing of the musicians uh, that directed the praise and the worship in God's temple uh, that would be uh, built and established. And again, I think as we look at these things, certainly they were literal realities, but it's always valuable to pay attention to these things too because uh, the Bible tells us in the New Testament now that the temple of the Lord is not a physical structure. It's not a building like this that we assemble and gather in. But the Bible says twofold. One, uh, that individually believers in Jesus Christ, uh, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit of God dwells in us and is within us to help us in our worship. And so our bodies, the Bible tells us, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and other places, that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. God's presence dwells within us and that worship is facilitated through our lives. But the Bible also tells us in 1 Corinthians 3 and other places that the church collectively, that is you and I together as the body of Christ, that we also are referred to as the temple temple of the Lord and like living stones we've been fit together and the Lord kind of uses us uh, to assemble us together we have our place like a living stone in the body of Christ God's put us where he wants us together with other living stones and God manifests his presence among us and so even here as we see that worship was a very integral part of the temple uh, physically and literally in David and Solomon's day for Israel, uh, it's a good reminder to us that uh, worship and praise and thanksgiving is an integral part of really what should be our activity as individual believers who are a temple of the Lord, as well as us collectively. That we represent the temple of the Lord now, and so worship should be an essential and integral part of what we do. And the primary reason that we gather and do the things that we do, not necessarily to have a great social functions and you know putting on concerts and doing social activities and even ministry programs. Again, nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves, but the primary reason we exist as individual believers and collectively in this thing we call the church is for the worship of God. That really should be what our primary focus is and our reason for existing is. And the reason why is when we shed these earthly bodies and we enter into the presence of God into eternity, I don't really see anything in the book of Revelation about great ministry programs and social activities and, and church concerts. And I, I see worship. 
around the throne of God. Uh, that's what our eternal occupation is when we get there. So certainly now as the eternal spirit of the Lord dwells in us, we should be occupied in the same. So chapter 25 gives to us the organizing David does of the temple musicians and singers, thousands of individuals that really were the, the leaders who directed the praise and worship in the temple. It says, verse one, moreover, David... And the captains of the army, it says, separated for the service, some of the sons of Asaph, Heman, and Judithan, who shall prophesy with harps, stringed instruments and cymbals, and the number of the skilled men performing their service was, of the sons of Asaph first, and there's a list of some of his sons' names, Zachor and Joseph and Netaniah, and names we won't struggle to pronounce. Notice they were all, verse 2, under the direction of Asaph, who prophesied according to the order of the king. Of Judithan, the second one mentioned from verse 1, there were the sons of Judithan, Gedaliah and Zerai, and again, listing of the names, who again were noticed, verse 3, under the direction of their father, Judithan, who prophesied with a harp to give thanks and praise to the Lord of Heman, the sons of Heman, again, Bukaiah and Mattaniah and Uziel and Shubael and Jeremoth, again, listing of the names there in verse four, verse five tells us all these were the sons of Heman, the king seer in the words of God to exalt his horn for God gave him 14 sons and three daughters. All these were under the direction of their father for the music in the house of the Lord with cymbals and stringed instruments and harps for the service of the house of God. And Asaph and Judithan and Heman were under the authority of the king. So again, these first six verses here give to us some reference of how the organization was done by King David uh, at this time, for those who were directing the praise and worship music in the temple, uh, we'll see in the next verses ahead how they were actually set up in courses and they would rotate through. It seems about every two weeks, there was a new group of musicians and singers that would lead the praise and worship so that there was constant and continual worship, almost like unceasing praise in the house of God. And I think in some ways it's a good reminder symbolically of how that's really, again, what God ultimately wants in his eternal house, in the eternal presence of God. There's just unceasing praise and worship. The worship never ceases. It's not like they have a worship service where people go, man, this service has been an hour and a half. This is a... It's a long worship service. I mean, don't they know we got to go to lunch? And uh, that never happens in heaven. There's no, there's no time structure. There's just a constant, I'm looking forward to it myself. I don't care what anybody else thinks. Just constant, ongoing worship. Uh, no concern about I got to go to bed for the work the next morning or I got errands to run. It's just unceasing worship. Uh, no one ever gets bored of it. No one ever complains. Are we singing that song again? Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. There's just something about being in God's presence that invokes us to just want to worship and to continue to give praise and thanksgiving. And we find great fulfillment in our eternal glorified bodies doing that. But uh, these verses, I think, give to us some very interesting things to take note of. 
particularly verse one, one of the first things it tells us as they were David was organizing the praise and worship leaders. It says that they came from the families, the sons, that is the sons and daughters. We read as the verses go on, uh, the descendants of these three individuals, Asaph, Heman, and Judithan. Now we know those three individuals, particularly from the book of Psalms, these were individuals like David himself who the Holy Spirit actually used to write and record some of our Psalms. And again, as we've said before, the book of Psalms in the Old Testament is basically like a Hebrew hymnal. A lot of those poetic Psalms were set to music and they were used in melodic ways, whether they were sung a cappella or put to the sound of harps and, and stringed instruments and sung. Again, a lot of times music has this incredible way of helping us to remember things. You kind of hear a catchy tune and you know what that's like. You can flip something on the radio and you hear it and then it's like later on in the day that song's kind of stuck in your head. And God knows the power of music and how it kind of has this way of, of sticking within us. And so all of these poetic uh, writings uh, in the book of Psalms, many of them were used to be sung as well in worship unto the Lord. And these are three of the individuals uniquely who actually had a gift from the Spirit to be songwriters, psalm writers. These were individuals who had a spiritual anointing to write songs to sing as worship unto the Lord and their families were the ones who also were inclined with musical abilities and interestingly enough though I think it should be a calling and a spiritual anointing when we serve the Lord in ministry it has been proven genetically through studies that a lot of times a musical gene will pass through descendants uh, genealogically so uh, a lot of times you know if a parent uh, is musically inclined to sing or play an instrument that will be passed on uh, to the children and so these three individuals their families were the ones who ended up predominantly being those who led the praise and worship what's interesting is it tells us in verse 1 of chapter 25 here notice that they were to prophesy interesting prophesy with harps it says prophesying with harps stringed instruments cymbals and then again it references as well in verse 2 Asaph who prophesied according to the order of the king and here's interesting as we're talking about giving praise and worship through song and music unto the Lord that notice that there is an element of prophecy to musical worship from God's perspective that God here, by the Spirit, as the, the book of Chronicles is being recorded, says that these musical leaders who led praise and worship music and songs, they were to do such using their instruments and voices to prophesy. Now, to me, that's interesting. There's a prophetic element to worship music. Uh, and in some ways, that, that makes sense to me. The idea is, you know, through music, prophecy was being brought forth. I think in a couple of ways, certainly through spirit-anointed songwriting. You know, a lot of times we listen to certain songs, maybe on Christian radio that come out, or worship songs that, that again, people who have a spiritual anointing from the Lord, the Lord gives them a song. And sometimes the song that they write, the lyrics, the courses, it's amazing how there's really sort of a word from the Lord that God is giving to them. And when we listen to those songs, maybe as we're driving in our car on the radio or we sing one of those songs, there's something about that song 
that actually ministers to us. And it's like a word from the Lord and maybe some song comes on and we just really resonate with it and it's like God is communicating to us and speaking to us. Again, a prophetic word to our own heart as these spirit-inspired songs are being used. You know, songs with good theological content or just good spiritual expression where we, again, I think of the hymns. You know, one of the great value of the hymns uh, in, in times of old, I think certainly that they carry is that they were, many of them, certainly written in a day and age when technology didn't exist and all the modern you know, things that we had that so distract us as human beings from just having solitude. So you're freaking out. That silence was killing you there, wasn't it? You're going, oh my goodness. You know, it, it, we, just, we, we are a generation that we are so almost like, you know, like the Pavlog dog. I mean, it's like we're, we're, we're just salivating for the next buzz of our phone or we're, we have to honestly always, it seems like, have sound or noise or something. Or, and so we live in a generation that's kind of losing this dynamic of just sitting quietly, meditating, thinking, pondering. And I think certainly as I think of some of the saints of old and the hymn writers and some of the old preachers of old, some of the valuable gems that were brought forth because they just had time to think and they mused and meditated deeply on doctrine and theological truths. And you know, that's why when we sing some of those hymns, we think, man, this is just like so rich in its expression of what it says about God. Uh, or, or again, not to say that that doesn't happen in, again, I think of some of the praise courses that kind of, you know, became more popular during the time of probably, you know, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the Maranatha music. And again, we need both. I value and appreciate hymns and spiritual songs. And for people who want to argue that, just read your New Testament. It says in Ephesians that we're to sing using psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So right there, if you know, well, it's only about the hymns. Well, the Bible says psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Well, these hymns, I can't stand those old hymns. Give me some modern contemporary praise songs. The Bible says psalms and hymns and spiritual songs because there's value to all of them. And sometimes if it's not the, the deep theological content, sometimes it's just certain songs. Are there not some of the praise courses and contemporary music? Sometimes the way they express things that we kind of want to say to God as we use that song, some of them are wonderful. And there's something powerful happening between us expressing something to God and God's kind of just communicating things to our hearts. So I think a prophetic element happens in that way, a lot of times through music, people learn valuable truths about God as they reflect upon truths, you know, even as we, you know, we sing through songs. I want to encourage you not to miss that dynamic as you sing in worship. Again, there are many reasons simply because God's worthy of our worship why I would encourage you don't diminish or ever devalue or think even that it's inferior the time of singing and praise and worship music than the message of the word of God itself, which sometimes Christians have a kind of a tendency to do. You know, it's like music time is the time to kind of get in late, you know, before the, the teaching starts or whatever. Listen, first of all, God's worthy of our worship. Second of all, I'm telling you something, something really powerful happens from the spirit in the midst of times of sitting in the presence of the Lord, standing in the presence of the Lord and just singing worship songs. Because if you sing worship songs with intentionality 
and you really do pay attention to the words, right? And you're not just kind of rambling, but if you really pay attention to the words, our God is the, you know, the lion and the lamb. That comes from Revelation. As Revelation says, Jesus is the lion and the lamb. The Bible says Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And again, just as we're singing through worship songs, sometimes as I'm singing through worship songs, just scriptures come to my mind as I'm singing that song and singing it, trying to love the Lord my God with all of my heart and my soul and my mind and my strength, saying, focus, how how God brings verses to your mind And God begins to minister to you because you realize, well, that song actually has scriptural content and that's where the ideas came from. So again, I encourage you, some of the greatest times to hear from the Lord, a prophetic word coming to your heart, sometimes happens in the midst of of music by the song that's being sung as a a sensitive worship leader selects certain you know songs maybe to sing that night or in the midst maybe even changes what they're going to play and sometimes again the spirit of the lord brings a prophetic word to someone's heart in the midst of worship like that Uh, i think another way that prophetic words can come in the midst of the leading of music as well is when a sensitive musician or worship leader at times maybe in the midst of leading music in brief ways and i stress the word brief may feel prompted to just say a thing or two that may just bring a tremendous word of comfort in the midst of kind of the transition from one song to the next or in the midst of a song or maybe a a, a word that's a word of encouragement and just something or maybe even a word of exhortation to respond to God. And there's some, there's a prophetic element. I think good, spirit-anointed, sensitive worship leaders that are musical can be used in a very powerful way with a prophetic word from the Lord sometimes to just in the midst of that bring forth prophetic words to really comfort and encourage the hearts of God's people, which is what prophecy does. It comforts, it encourages, it exhorts us to respond to God. And that can happen in beautiful ways in the midst of the music. So that prophetic element of musical worship, what a wonderful thing. Notice as well that those with musical skill uh, perform the service and ministry because you notice a few times you saw reference in those first six verses, this idea, we've seen it before, of skilled. It says right there at verse one that the number of those who were to lead in this capacity were skilled men performing their service. Again, we see that referenced a few times that they had skill. They were skilled individuals. And verse 7 says, all those who were skillful led the songs of the Lord. Again, there's nothing unspiritual about actual skill with playing an instrument or actual skill to sing. And I'll tell you why that matters to God, because I believe worship is a very important thing that matters to God's heart, because worship's not about us. It's really about God. A lot of times people say, well, worship wasn't very good. Let me ask you a question. Honestly, how could you know that? Worship's not for you. Right? But, but don't, we say that as Christians. We've said it probably ourselves before maybe, or we've heard people say, well, worship wasn't very good today. I just worship wasn't very good. If you, you're not God. Only God can say worship really wasn't very good. I didn't really, I really didn't care for that. I mean, didn't really like the song selection or I didn't like what was going on in his heart. He just was, he's worshiping me with his lips, but boy, his heart was far from me. Or God says that times we can worship him in vain. I don't ever want to be guilty of that. But, But again, 
worship because it's for God and it matters to God. God wants it to be skillful. And I think here's the reason why, because God doesn't want there to be distraction in worship. (laughs) And and let's just be very candid. If someone doesn't have skill, but they just really want to be a part of the worship musical ministry, but they don't have skill, it's just distracting. And it just distracts everybody because they're singing really off key or they're struggling with an instrument or they're not playing in cohesiveness with, you know, with the tempo of the music. So skill does matter. Not only should it be done excellent for the Lord because we want it to just be fluent, to have continuity in it in a way where it just happens and the worship leader uses skill and just in a very helpful way, they just facilitate singing. They facilitate praise and worship and they can use their God-given skill to even play songs in a way that people in the congregation or in the setting they're in in that particular meeting can connect to. And that's important because I'll tell you the other side of skillfulness in music that can be just as big of a complication when somebody is skillful or so skillful and they exercise that skill so much that it transitions from a congregational worship meeting to kind of just a concert. And they are so skillful and they demonstrate their skill so much in the midst of a congregational worship meeting that people just, they can't follow along, they can't sing like that, or they're just so impressed. Wow, look at that guy cut up on a guitar or that drum. And people, it just becomes like a concert. And so people just listen rather than engage. And God wants us to engage. And so they were to use their skill in this way to bring incessant praise to the Lord Notice as well, it tells us in these verses here that they were functioning under direction, that is under authority and under supervision. It mentions in verse two that they were leading the sons of Asaph under the direction of Asaph, their father. Verse three, again, uh, we have that repetition that the sons of Judathan, they functioned under the direction of Judathan. And then again, in verse five, they functioned Uh, excuse me verse 6 they functioned under the direction of their father for the music it says for the house of the Lord notice that's what the music was for it was for the house of the Lord with their instruments in the service of the house of God under the authority of the king but again we see those who were leading in the function of musical worship they operated in that ministry under authority under direction it wasn't theirs to just, well, I just feel like playing this or playing this song or playing that way. No, that there, was a, there was an authority that they functioned under. They functioned under the covering of an overseer, particularly these three men that were mentioned and appointed in that kind of role of oversight over the musical ministry in the temple. And those overseers certainly helped kind of just probably to keep their hearts in check sometimes maybe or just to make sure that they were doing what they were properly in a way Again, the purpose of all musical ministry, as I said, is really to facilitate worship. And that's what verse three specifically directs us to tell us at the end of verse three, this was all to give thanks and praise to the Lord. So again, it was important that as they were under the direction of overseers, that they stood on track. Look, your goal is to help people give thanks to God. Your goal was to assist the people to give praise to to the Lord and ultimately all they did wasn't just under the direction of human overseers their fathers or musical ministry but under the ultimate authority of the senior leader in the kingdom who was verse 6 it tells us the king all this was under the authority of the king 
So there were overseers over the musical ministry, but then all of the musical ministry was under the authority of the senior leader, the supreme leader at that time, which was the king himself, David. And I look at that and I think that's a great reminder of what all musical ministry ought to ultimately be under the authority of the king, and that's King Jesus. Because it's all about Jesus and it's all for Jesus. And so everything we do, it should be submitted. Lord, are you pleased with this? Is this what you want? And I'll tell you, if if the authority of King Jesus reigns over worship, something really wonderful happens in the temple of God where God's people are lifting their hearts towards him. So verse seven says, the number of them with their brethren who were instructed in the songs of the Lord, all who were, again, notice, skillful, was 288 and they cast lots that is you know casting lots to take their different sequences for their duty they functioned in a rotation the small as well as the great notice look at verse 8 the teacher i like this the teacher with the students so notice the diversity and practical aspects that existed in the musical worship ministry a few things that are just very I mean, just very practical things combined with spiritual things. People were, it says, instructed and trained in the songs of the Lord. Verse 7 says they were instructed. Other versions say they were taught or trained. That is, there was, there was a teaching element. People had to be trained in this capacity. They had to be, again, it says, skillful musically. That was necessary to avoid distraction. And the opportunity to serve ultimately was something that was available on a, a broad spectrum. It says that both the small and the great, both the teacher and the student, were able to participate in this ministry of leading musical worship. I'd like to see the opportunity here. It was not just for an exclusive set few, There was a multitude of people who were leading the musical worship. It says those who were small, and the inference there, those who were small, would be a reference to, if we might say, those who were unknown. (laughs) Those who were the uh, individuals maybe who perhaps you know, weren't uh, as experienced. Maybe the individuals who were still young, they were just small and unexperienced. At times they were given opportunity, even though they were small, to still exercise their ministry in a small way and to grow and learn, as well as those who were great. That might be a reference again to those who were more known and well-established. They were more experienced musicians and musical leaders, uh, maybe those who were older. But again, you have that variation of the experience and the unexperienced the older, the younger, working together. Even it says the teacher with the student. I like that. The teacher with the student, kind of that mentorship, discipleship thing where maybe there were shared times where the teacher with the student, the teacher said, okay, look, I'm going to lead three songs and you're going to accompany me, but you're going to lead the last song now. And again, raising up people and helping them to learn and develop as we ought to in the body of Christ so that there's that you know, shared responsibility and the next generation is embracing their role in this way as well. Well, verse 9 then gives to us down really through the remainder of the chapter just the names of the different courses. And again, you notice there are 24 courses on rotation, groups of musicians. So there was constant praise because, as I said, God likes his house to be filled with worship. So the listing was there about two weeks, it seems, out of the year. There was a responsibility for each of the 24 courses to take their turn 
in leading music. Chapter 26 then gives to us the organization of the gatekeepers. It says concerning the divisions of the gatekeepers of the Kohathites, Meshelamiah, the son of Kor, the sons of Asaph. And then again, we begin to get a listing of some of the names of these different gatekeepers that existed. Now, when we read of gatekeepers in the Old Testament regarding temple service, the gatekeepers weren't just maybe what we might think in our modern you know, terminology of like ushers and greeters. They were more than that. Gatekeepers were kind of like the guardians and the security individuals that stood at the gateways that led into the temple area, the temple precincts. Now, that was important for many different reasons. First of all, they were to protect and preserve the storehouses. Remember, in the temple, there were also lots of storehouses on the temple precincts. And lots of valuable things were in those storehouses, whether it was precious metals and gold, whether it was things for the priests to conduct their sacrificial worship and all those kind of things. There were valuable things kept in the storehouses and the treasuries, the monetary treasuries in the house of the Lord. So these gatekeepers were the guardians and security staff to protect and, and, and really prevent from the enemy infiltrating God's house. And coming in and robbing that which is valuable and precious in the Lord's temple from robbing or stealing or interfering in any way with the treasures of God's work and from uh, the things of God being ruined. They served in God's house to ensure worship and ministry was not being hindered. They served in a way through their security and their kind of guardianship and wisdom to provide a safe and kind of just unhindered environment for worship to happen among God's people and for the work of the Lord to take place. And I think, you know what? What a valuable thing. Gatekeepers. Those who recognize, you know what? The enemy is always looking to infiltrate God's work, to hinder worship, to interrupt ministry, to do things, to rob what is precious and good from taking place in God's house and among God's people. And praise the Lord for people who have a heart like a gatekeeper. Praise the Lord for people who say, you know what, I'm going to stand watch, whether it's through my prayers or my practical efforts, to try and do my best to keep safe and to diminish interruption and hindrance and from the devil working in his little ways through his schemes to rob what God wants to do among his people, to interfere with worship or to rip off what's valuable and precious among God's house and the good things that want to happen. That's really what these gatekeepers did. It says there in verse 6 that Shemaiah and his sons were those who governed their father's houses because they were men. Notice these gatekeepers. They weren't just, you know, kind of unessential. They were men, it says, of great ability. Verse 9 says that these gatekeepers of the sons of Obed-Edom were able men with strength for the work. Again, great men, able men with strength, backbone to not be afraid to confront people. Physical strength, if needed to hinder or restrain people who would seek to be enemies to rob or harm any of what God wanted to do. So these gatekeepers as well served in these rotations. Uh, and again, they're described really from uh, verse 6 down through there. There's a, a reference to these gatekeepers 
uh, verse 12 and 13 tell us how they cast lots for the different divisions that they would kind of rotate in their times of service. Uh, Verse 16 tells us again, their role was kind of a function notice as watchmen opposite watchmen. So that's what their role was. They, They kept watch on things that were happening in God's house. Look at verse 20. It says of the Levites, Ahijah was over the treasuries of the house of God and over the treasuries of the dedicated things. So again, this is why these gatekeepers were important. God's treasures, the the finances, the valuable things in God's house needed to be protected. Verse 26, towards the end of the chapter says, this Shelamoth and his brethren were over all the treasuries of the dedicated things which King David and the heads of the father's houses and captains over thousands and hundreds had dedicated, verse 27, some of the spoils won in battles, they dedicated, I like verse 27, it says, to maintain the house of the Lord. So again, these spoils from battle, the gold, the silver, the treasuries, the you know the monetary spoils they brought back and these things, they were dedicated to God's house in worship from the people and they were necessary to be protected because those things... Those valuable things, those monetary things were used to maintain the house of the Lord. Uh, And so, again, there was this heart of stewardship. Hey, we need to protect what is necessary and given by God's people to maintain the house of the Lord and that work of God. Now, verse 29 down through verse 32, then reference kind of some of the organization of some of the civil and government jobs. Uh, There's a reference to those who had oversight over the west side of the Jordan. Verse 30, it says, for all the business of the Lord and the service of the king. Among the Hebronites, it says there was uh, a group of individuals uh, who served in the 40th year of the reign of David, and they were sought and were found among capable men at Jezir and Gilead. And King David, verse 32, says, made officials over the Reubenites and the Gadites for, verse 32, every matter, notice, for every matter pertaining to God and the affairs of the king. Again, again, all these things, having their place, having their importance, none of them being one more important than the other, just like the body of Christ. There are all different roles and functions and ministries that God calls us together with different personalities and skills and giftings from the Lord to fulfill our functions, just like described here, for every matter pertaining to God. And for all the service of the king, there are all kinds of matters that pertain to the things of God, practical things, spiritual things, logistics, you know, planning, service, all these different things that pertain to God's overall work and contribute to the worship of God and the help of his people spiritually. And we each need to be willing to recognize what our part is and really to say, all right, Lord, you're the king. What's my assignment? What's my assignment in regards to the things that pertain to God and the affairs of you, Jesus, as my king? Chapter 27, sort of the last chapter regarding David's organizational work here, really describes the organization of the king's military and the active duty soldiers that were there. It says the children of Israel, according to their number, the heads of their fathers, of thousands and hundreds serve the king in every matter of military 
divisions, and these divisions came in, verse 1 says, and went out month by month throughout all the months of the year, each division having 24,000. Now, from verse uh, 2 there down through the end of verse 15, again, you get a reference of each of these different divisions And what's described here are these 12 different divisions, each division having 24,000 soldiers or military men. And they each took one month out of the calendar year to serve as active duty military. So David established this system where there were 12 divisions, one for each month of the year with 24,000 soldiers. And what they basically did was 11 months out of the year, they could work their fields, they could you know, employ their trade, they could be at home with their family, and then one month out of the calendar year, they would come and they would serve as active duty military and provide defense and protection for the nation. And then after the end of the month, they'd go back home for the next 11 months and the next group would rotate in here. So again, as you look at what David's doing here, verse 16 through 22 then gives the, the actual individuals who are the leaders over those different divisions. And then as you come to the end of the chapter, you see just some further organization. Look with me in verse 25. Again, you just see David's heart for order and organization as the king. Just read with me through the rest of the chapter here. You kind of get the sense of what David was doing. It says, And Azamoth, the son of Adiel, was over the king's treasuries. Jehonathan, the son of Uziah, he was over the storehouses in the field, in the cities, in the villages, and in the treasuries. Ezri, he was over those who did the work of the field for tilling the ground. So he's kind of like the you know, secretary of agriculture, keeping track of those kind of things. Verse 27, you have Shimaiah uh, as well, who was over the vineyards. Zabdi was over the produce of the vineyards for the supply of wine. Bahanan, he was over the olive trees and the sycamore trees in the lowlands. And Joash was over the store of oil again now we might look at that and think who cares god does they actually got space in the bible it's better than i got (laughs) look but but we may say too i mean yeah i mean that's kind of like what i do i mean they put me in charge of the coffee pots they tell me to put away the creamers every week and we might think well it's just so look god's saying here here's who was watching the olive trees and making sure that the fields were taken care of. And again, all these different aspects of oversight and leadership, taking care of things, maintaining different responsibilities. Why? So the kingdom functioned harmoniously and orderly and with good stewardship because as long as you do what you do out of honor for the king because he appointed you to do that, the king is pleased. And the same that applied for David and his kingdom applies for the kingdom of God. As long as you do and oversee and give your best to what you have been appointed to do for the Lord, that's pleasing to the Lord. And it contributes to the overall function of the harmony of the work of the kingdom in a way where the king is pleased and his work is prospered. Look down at the end of the chapter, verse 32 and 33, just some interesting little references here. It says that Jehonathan... David's uncle was a counselor 
a wise man, and if you're going to have a counselor, that's what you want him to be. Just, just a little insight there from God's word for you. David's uncle, he was one of his good counselors in his life, and the reason why is because he just was a wise man. That's the kind of individual you want to give you counsel. He was a scribe, and that's why he was wise. Scribes were those who kept track and recorded the word of God, so he knew God's word well, and that's why he was a wise man and a good counselor for King David. And Jehiel, the son of Hamani, was with the king's sons. Verse 33, Ahithophel was another one of the king's counselors. And verse 33 says, And Hushai, the archite, was the king's companion. And after Ahithophel, there was Jehoiada, the son of Benaniah, and Abiathar. And the general of the king's army at that time was Joab. And I like that little reference there at the end of verse 33 as it's talking about some people who are kind of part of David's cabinet and around him as counselors, you know, just like a president has, you know, senior advisors around him and all that kind of stuff. Notice as you kind of have all this in a function of the leadership of a government, verse 33 says Hushai, it just says he was the king's companion. Do you know what that means? It means he was his friend. Hushai was the one, guys, I'm, I'm not David's counselor. I'm not one of his cabinet members. I don't have oversight over the olive groves or the vineyards or anything else. But, but you know what I'm here to do? I'm here just to be a friend of that guy. I'm here just to realize that though he's a king, he's still a human being. And though he's got a lot of responsibility and in many ways he kind of functions like just the resource to take care of everything for everybody, he still needs a relationship. He still needs people. And what a beautiful thing. You know, Hushai just was the king's companion. Just sought to be a companion to David. Somebody who David could just, you know, kind of experience just normal relationship with. And, and I'm sure, you know, David, like anyone in that type of a role, you know, a government leader or any type of a leader, you know, there, there's something just, you know, that's healthy and enjoyable at times where, you know, people don't look at you at, in regards to your position, but just as a person. Because sometimes when you have a position, you stop getting viewed as a person. You stop getting treated as a person. Uh, and so Hushai, just what a beautiful thing. Just this loving companionship, probably just a great friend to David and being his companion, giving fellowship to him. Just a beautiful thing. Well, let's look at just a couple verses of chapter 28 and we'll wrap up our time. We won't go through all of it. We'll finish the rest of the chapter in 29 next week but it says verse 21 uh, of chapter 28 now david assembled at jerusalem all the leaders of israel again he's going to transition power to solomon now that's what chapter 28 will be about it says he assembled all the leaders at jerusalem uh, of israel the officers the captains the divisions who serve the king captains over a thousand so he brings together all the leadership of the nation at this time it says the officials valiant men men mighty men of valor and the king rose to his feet and again this shows that this is something important because david's older at this time his health is declining but this is an important thing because he's going to transition power over to his son at this moment he said hear me my brethren my people i had it in my heart to build a house for the rest house of rest excuse me for the ark of the covenant of the lord and for the footstool of our god and made preparations for it. But God said to me, you shall not build a house for my name because you have been a man of war and have 
shed blood. And we've talked about this before, where David had it in his heart to build God's temple, uh, yet God wanted his temple to be marked by peace. It wasn't as if David had done something wrong because he had shed blood. Much of the blood that David shed was just by the result of his calling. He was a general. He was a military man. He was a warrior and a king by calling. And much of the blood at times that was shed, sometimes even God was leading David in those wars and battles. They were justified wars that David was fighting. But because he was a warrior and a man of blood, God wanted his temple not to be marked by fighting and sweat and blood and striving he wanted to be marked by peace and tranquility and so when the temple was built uh, it would be a man of rest and peace who was to do that and that's really what solomon was solomon was a much more soft-natured individual who uh, really didn't fight battles very much and so uh, therefore david though he had it in his heart god orchestrated the the final actual construction process through someone else david did much of the preparation but he didn't actually do the construction itself. However, he says, the Lord God of Israel chose me above all the house of my father, verse four, to be king over Israel forever. For he has chosen Judah to be ruler and the house of Judah, the house of my father. And among the sons of my father, he was pleased with me to make me king over all Israel. And again, here, David, just in his humility, even at the, the latter stages of his life, there really is just an expression of humility here because I think you know, David never stopped being shocked that God actually chose him to be a king. And that's what he's expressing there. He says, for some reason, it pleased God by the grace of his sovereign choice alone to make me, of all the people in Israel, the one who would be the king of Israel. Again, remember, David came from you know, a, a very meager existence. He was the youngest of the sons. He was the most overlooked individual. He kind of was one of those individuals, just was a shepherd boy out in the field. And God took him from the sheepfold and just by the grace of God, chose him, selected him, and exalted him because of what he saw in David's heart to the place where David was. And I think David just realized, look, this has nothing to do with us. It's nothing to do with me. And that's why David recognized, even as he mentions his son now, he says with that same idea with himself, and of all my sons, verse five, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen, God chose, Solomon, my son, to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. So he says of, of all those he could have chosen as my successor, and he said, I had a lot of sons, he chose Solomon probably the least likely individual again that anyone would have thought should be David's successor as the great king over Israel. But again, God determines things by his grace. And he says, so Solomon, I know by God's choice is my successor. He's the one to take over my role and my function. He should be the one to succeed me in this role of leading the nation. Now he said to me, it is your son Solomon who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son and I will be his father. Moreover, I'll establish his kingdom forever. If he is steadfast to observe my commandments and my judgments as to this day. So again, if Solomon were to be loyal unto the Lord, then God would keep his kingdom established. If he would obey the commands of God, that's what would bring stability to Solomon and to his reign. Verse 8, he gives his injunction finally to these leaders. Now, therefore, in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord 
And in the hearing of our God, be careful, he says to all of his leaders, to seek out all the commandments of the Lord your God that you may possess this good land and leave it as an inheritance for your children after you forever. Now, as David comes to verse 9 and 10, he's going to publicly exhort his son Solomon specifically with his charge and responsibility in regards to the huge role that he was stepping into to be David's successor and to take over the throne and to lead the nation and how that was a very critical thing. But David here gives a general exhortation now to all of those who are leaders saying to them, listen, in the sight and in the hearing of God, he says, verse 8, if you want prosperity for the land, if you want stability, then he says, it boils down to this. He says, be careful to seek out the commandments of the Lord that you may possess this good land and leave it as an inheritance for your children. You know, as David ties together, if you want to experience stability, if you want to experience prosperity, he says, it's as simple as this. Do things God's way and he says if you just do things God's way the land will be stable God will prosper the nation things will go well and he says and you can leave it as an inheritance for your children after you and again what is David saying David's saying the key to experiencing God's goodness is just obey the Lord just obey the Lord it's not complicated You know, think of the simplicity all throughout the word of God. And David's going to give the same personal exhortation to his son in the next verse. He's going to say, Solomon, know God. Serve him with a loyal heart. God knows what's going on in your heart, Solomon. Just know God and serve him and you'll do fine as the king of Israel. But again, the simplicity of what a good life really boils down to. You know, you read the word of God and how God constantly is simplifying things. Micah chapter 6, there's that famous passage where the people are saying, what does the Lord require of us? And what does God require? And God could say all these things. And he says, he says, he has shown thee, O man, what's good and what the Lord requires of you. Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And what does God require? What's God requiring of me? It must be. And we're expecting all this exhaustive explanation. And, and, and he says, God's already shown you. You, and says, you already know. It's not complicated. <laughs> a lot of times we don't, it's not a matter of lacking of knowing. It's a matter of lacking of doing. And he says, God's already shown you. Just do what's right. Do what's just. Do the right thing. Love mercy. Love God's mercy for yourself. When you fail, accept his mercy and forgiveness. Don't beat yourself up and be condemned and show mercy to other people because they are going to fail just like you do. So be merciful to people and then just walk humbly with God. Just walk humbly with God. And it's amazing is how we do that. God's blessing is upon what we do. Let's stand together.